Lesson 7 of the book of Romans. And we're at the end of chapter 2. We're going into chapter 3. And Paul has been spewing out lessons in hypocrisy. He finished with the Gentile contingent of the community in Rome. And now he's addressing the Jewish contingent in Rome. And the theme that's been running through this address is uh, to the Jewish contingent is that you may be Jewish, but that won't keep you from the judgment of God. There's no people group that you can belong to, no genealogy that's going to be of much merit on the day when God looks into the secret hearts of men and makes a judgment. He's going to make a judgment not on the basis of your ethnicity, but on the basis of your deeds. He's going to reward each man according to what he's done. At least that's what my Bible says. And in that regard, I just want to read from chapter 2 and verse 25 through 29 again. Give us some continuity here. Circumcision has value if you observe the Torah. But if you break the Torah, then you have become as though one who had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the Torah's requirements, will they not be be regarded as if they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the Torah will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and the circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and the circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, I want to say that these are some verses that are really hard verses for those in the Messianic communities, those who keep Torah, who've come to the decision that Yeshua nor Paul ever abrogated Torah, they should not be hard because as we have seen, when kept in context, they actually say the opposite of that, right? What Paul has been saying is that the Torah is of value if it's kept in spirit and in truth. And he's going to go into some other reasons as we continue. But you know what happens? Is we Christians often take Paul's verses out of their context. And this is a perfect example. If you listen to the teachings and the sermons in the church, they're often topical messages that pull verses from here and there. They totally remove those verses from their context. And whenever you do that and you insert them into a topical sermon, you put that, mess- you put that verse into the context of your own message, your own thoughts. And when you do that, if you're not careful, you change the entire meaning of the verse. And the context here is easy. It's been hypocrisy. That's why Paul said a man is not a Jew if he's one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit and not by the written code. You see, when taken out of their context, verses 16 through 21 seem to say, hey, we don't need the written code. We don't need Torah, but what we need is the Spirit. It's often also used to say 
uh, not only the written code and the Torah are no longer valid, but the Jewish people who follow the Torah are not part of God's people any longer. We are now Israel. We are now the Jews because we live by the Spirit and not by the written code. Well, as we can see, when you put it all back into its context, that's not at all what is said. You see, the way to study the Bible is book by book, verse by verse, line upon line, word upon word, keeping everything in its proper context. When you leave in the context of verse 17, which I'm going to read now, it says, Now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely upon the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the Torah and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You see, the context is hypocrisy. It has nothing to do with abolishing Torah, nor does it say that Jewish people are no longer loved by God because they obey the written code and not the Spirit. It doesn't say anything like that. But you see that all Paul is saying is let your observance of Torah reflect your circumcision, the covenant that's been made. He's saying that your observance of the written code is meant to be an outward manifestation of, the, of being led by the Master. Let your observance be led by the Spirit and you'll be filled with the love, the compassion, and the mercy of God and your circumcision will then mean something. Well, sadly, instead, we've removed these verses from their context and used it to say that we're separate from the Jews. We're different from the Jews. Think about it. Think about it for a minute. Because I think if you look at the average Christian, even one who's a supporter of Israel, we can see this type of thinking. We tend to look at others of our own sphere and ethnic background as kin of some, some sort. Most have a burden to see other Gentiles in that sphere who aren't saved come to know Messiah. We feel a kinship, even if those, like I say, even if those Gentiles uh, are not followers of Messiah, we have a burden for them. Jewish people, however, we, we don't look at that in the same way because of verses like this taken out of context. We have this us and them mentality. They're observers and followers of the written code, which is no longer the will of God, but we are followers of Yeshua and God's Spirit. Not only that, but because Paul says, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart and by the Spirit and not by the written code, we Christians often feel that we have replaced the Jews in the economy of God And we are the true Jews, and we are the true Israel. But as we can see, that is nonsense, because that is not at all what is being said. The only way that you can come up with that is totally take those verses out of their context. And not just that, but then you have to do something with chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2 where he says, What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. You know, if you think God is done with the Jewish people, what are you going to do with this? If we think God is done with the Jews and the Torah, what are we going to do with this? 
If that is what you think, then the advantage of being a Jew rather than a Gentile is not much in every way, but it's much in no way. The fact that they've been entrusted with the very words of God means nothing. How can something of, of no value be an advantage? How can God no longer have a burden for the Jewish people? You see, we end up reading the book of Romans like this. And a man is not a Jew if he's one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart and by the spirit and not the written code. What advantage then is there being a Jew? Of what value is their circumcision much in every way? But they've been trusted with the very words of God. <laughs> you see, those last words there, they don't register in our minds or in our speech. We don't hear them because we listen to someone else tell us that God is done with the Jews in the Torah. For those who feel that God is done with the Jewish people, these verses are a thorn in their side. They have to make, go out of their way to make excuses. Paul, anticipating the objection of the Jewish contingent that he's speaking to, is about to tell us that the Jewish people have a special place in the heart of God. They were his instrument to bring the knowledge of him into the world. And not just that, but they also brought his son into the world. In case you hadn't heard, Yeshua was a Jew. And you shouldn't laugh because there's a lot of people who haven't heard that yet. I was, I, I was dumbfounded the very first time somebody came to me and said, I didn't know Yeshua was a Jew. You see, you cannot, make these, you cannot make these verses do away with the Jewish people or Torah, which is the very words of God, unless you remove the verses from, context, from their context and go into a stupor as you read the verses before and after. The value of circumcision is you are brought into covenant relationship with God by your parents and they teach you Torah. They teach you how to live by the ways of God. Remember, we said last week that circumcision was a sign and a sign put on the reproductive organ. It was a sign to ensure that Abraham would remember to pass his walk with God onto his offspring. And it was a walk that was filled with truth and integrity and honesty and fairness. A walk that was one of relationship with God. And that is what Abraham did. I'm convinced he sat Jacob on his knee. And he certainly passed it on to Isaac. And it is what all who bear the mark of circumcision were supposed to do. This is why. Listen again to Genesis chapter 18 verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What advantage is the Torah or the written code which are the oracles of God in the life of a person? What are the advantages? Well, let me say, if I have to tell you why the oracles of God are important, you should probably get up out of your seat and go down the hall to the kids' primary class and then work your way up through the ranks to the bar mitzvah and then listen to this later by CD. You see, circumcision and Torah are not separable. Remember, circumcision has, it said, circumcision has value if you observe the law. 
It is the observance of the Torah that gives circumcision value. That's why God said to Abraham this in verse chapter 26. I swore to your father Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them these lands through, and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me, kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, my law, my Torah, we could say. And as I pointed out last week, God chose Abraham and made covenant with him and gave him the sign of circumcision because he obeyed his requirements, his commands, decrees, and Torah. You can't separate one from the other because they are cause and effect. And as we saw above, passing along those to your children is also why he chose Abraham. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, For what if some... Did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, we read this sometimes and say, what if some did not believe? Well, let me ask you, believe what? What if some did not believe? Believe what? Well, it's natural for us to think Yeshua, right off that, that they didn't believe in Yeshua. Right? And while that's true, it's not the whole story because we, remember, context is everything. What has he been speaking of? He's been speaking of the oracles of God. Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God, and yes, they preserved them faithfully with ink and pen. However, they did not always follow them in Tamim as Abraham did. Do you remember our definition from, of the word of Tamim from last week? And, and when we looked at Abraham's covenant, God chose Abraham because he would walk habitually before him and be thou perfect, it said. And the Hebrew word there for perfect was tamim, and it means with integrity, with truth, and without blemish. So let me ask you, did Israel follow the commands with integrity, truth, and without blemish, as God asked Abraham to do? No. You see, you can have the oracles of God, but if you don't do them, you have to then ask yourself, do you really believe them? You have to do them. If you do them, then you believe them. Understand this. Actions always line up with beliefs. I'm not going to go outside today in my shorts if I believe it's going to be 20 below zero. My actions will line up with my belief and I'll put on my parka. In my long underwear. Right? Let's look at Abraham again. Actions always line up with belief. And listen to what it says in 15 verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So look, here in chapter 15 we read this. But it's not until chapter 22 in the offering of Isaac that we read just how much he believed the Lord. He believed God enough to offer the son of the promise, the one through who his offspring would be reckoned as a sacrifice. Reasoning, of course, that God would raise him from the dead in order to keep his promises. Actions line up with belief. And if your actions don't follow the oracles of God, then one must assume that even though you've kept them faithfully word for word on paper, you didn't believe those words. An example. If you go to the Reformed temples, you can go to the Reformed temples and they'll have many, many scrolls in their ark, many, many more than we do, each meticulously copied 
word for word, letter for letter. And then after being copied, there even each letter is counted to ensure accuracy. And when those scrolls are taken out of the ark, everyone celebrates those scrolls as they're danced around the room on Simchatorah. But if you ask some of those people that are sitting out there rejoicing over those very scrolls, if they believe the words on the pages of those scrolls, they'll say no. And indeed, you'll find that some of those temples are led by those who do what those scrolls say is an abomination. And yet, they've got the written code. Do they believe it? No, they don't. And make no mistake, we could also say that it means Yeshua as well. Because if you have the oracles of God, which are the Torah, the prophets, and the other writings, you should have believed something else besides, besides keeping the commands. You should have also believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. You should have recognized and believed. Psalm 40 says, Lo, in the volume of the scroll is written to me, and the me is Messiah. Having the Torah means you should have seen the Messiah. Having the oracles of God means that you should not have missed the hour of your visitation. They'd read the book of Daniel. They shouldn't have missed the hour of their visitation. They shouldn't have missed his birth. They had Isaiah chapter 7 and Micah chapter 5. You see, they should have believed in Messiah. And I know that that's what Paul means in part because we can read later this in Romans chapter 10 verse 4. Messiah is the goal of the Torah so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And if your Bible says end, you need to get out a pencil right now and change that word end there to goal. Because the word there in the Greek is telos, and it does mean end, but it means end as in a goal. It's the root word for telephone, and when you dial the telephone, you have a goal in mind. What Paul is saying is that the Torah was given to lead you to Messiah. He's the goal of the Torah, and if you've missed him in the Torah, you've missed the reason the book was written. But the question Paul raises is, will their unbelief nullify God's faithfulness? And to that, Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. You see, God is faithful to judge correctly, and he knows that we're all going to fail at some point. But he considers the whole of our lives. And he also considers promises that he's made to us. You may forget promises made to God, but he'll never forget the promises he made to you. And so what does he use for a proof text of that? Well, he goes to one of the great failures in the Bible. He quotes a Psalm of David written because of his failure with Uriah and Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. One of the great failures of the Bible, David, You know, I have yet to listen to someone who's read the story of David, Uriah, the Hittite, and Bathsheba, who did not say, how come David was not put to death? He committed adultery and murder. How come he was not put to death? Well, I can tell you why. Because of the promises of God. Did David's failure to uphold the commands of God nullify God's faithfulness to the promises that God had made to David? Of course not. Did the act cause a judgment to be made? Well, yes, it did. David's first son through Bathsheba died. 
even though through the pleas of David for his life, for the life of that son, they were of no effect. But it, did it nullify the promise of God? Absolutely not, because then Solomon, he's born second and he becomes king. And King Messiah still comes through the line of David as God has promised. Yes, there was judgment. David's first son died for the sins of the father and his second son ruled, foreshadowing Messiah's first coming who too died for the sins of the father. And the next time he comes, he's going to rule. Verse 5, he says, But if your righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I considered as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some have claimed that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. You know, how can anybody, I don't know how anybody could make the argument that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, and because of that, our unrighteousness is a good thing. Because all who see us sees how righteous God is. That since he created us and we bring out his righteousness, he's unjust to bring his wrath upon us. That's absurd. And yet you hear it said all the time. Well, maybe not a direct correlation. You hear people say all the time, well, God made me this way. How can he judge me for that? This is the way he made me. And, you know, the rabbi saw this. Listen to these midrash, a couple of midrash I pulled up. He says, Master of the world, if I have killed Abel, It is thou who has created me in the evil inclination. Thou watchest me and the whole world. Why did thou permit me to kill him? It is thou who has killed him. For if thou hast received my sacrifice as thou did receive his sacrifice, I would not have become jealous of him. Or this one from Pasikta Rabadi, it says, O Lord, thou hast enticed me and I was enticed. Thou hast shown me strength and has prevailed over me. The congregation of Israel said to the Holy One, Blessed be he, Master of the universe, thou didst entice me before thou gavest Torah to me. So I set the yoke of the commandments upon my neck and was punished because of my violation of them. Had I not accepted the Torah, I would have been like one of the nations getting neither reward or punishment. Well, the point is this. Paul will state it plainly in verse 9. No one, How many is no one? No one is going to stand before God one day with any excuse. No one is going to be justified by someone else's mistakes. No one will be excused because someone else did the same thing. You hear that all the time. I hear that from my kids. Well, so-and-so can do it. But it's by your own actions that you're going to stand or fall. Having Torah while it's good will not get you any special treatment. Doing Torah will ensure you'll have a few fewer charges against you. But understand, there's no special treatment on that day because all, both Jew and non-Jew alike, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what he says in the next sentence. In verse 9, he says, What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have proved, both Jews and Gentiles, 
that they are all under sin as it is written. No one is righteous, no, not one. You see, now he gets to the crux of the thing. Now he's talking to everybody. And it's something that he's been saying all along. The Jewish contingent of the congregation, think about it. They sat in their chairs as chapter 1 and chapter 2 were being read and watched the Gentiles squirm in their chairs. And what were they thinking? Paul knew what they were thinking. They were sitting there thinking, we're special. We're God's covenant people. We have Torah. They have transgressions and no Torah. We've been circumcised. They're on the outside. We've always been a part of, because we are Israel. We're all descended from Abraham and we carry the mark of that. We carry circumcision. So we're good and the Gentiles, well, not so much. We keep Torah and yes, we might not do everything exactly right, but we're good. We're in. We got circumcision. We got Torah. The Gentiles, not so much. Well, Paul just took it all away. He says all have sinned. There's no one righteous. Having Torah doesn't make you righteous. There is an advantage in having Torah. It gives you the advantage of knowing what sin is. And that's an advantage. If you believe it, he says. But if you don't believe it, having Torah is no advantage. Now, next he's going to quote a series of Psalms, which we'll probably look at next week, but I want to read through them anyway as we finish up for today. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it is to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Is there anyone in here who didn't squirm in their seat when they said their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit? Is there anyone in here who has never spoken evil of someone? How about the poison of vipers is on their lips? Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Is there anyone in here who has never spoken evil of another? Anyone who has not been mad at somebody at some point and expressed that anger and their bitterness to someone else? Anybody? No one. Wow. Imagine that. You see, Paul uses the mouth because all of us are guilty of this sin of the mouth. We're always quick with our tongue. You know, I said this a week or two ago. But the context today bears repeating. Whenever I do the sermon on Lashon Hara or evil speech in English, in other words, what it really is is speaking of another in a way that would cause that person harm, whether true or false. This place becomes so quiet and the head so bowed that all I can see is chair backs and my words echoing back at me. This is what he's saying. This is what the Torah says. How are you doing it, keeping it? Hey, you're special. God gave you the oracles. You have this great advantage because God gave you Torah. How are you doing it, keeping at it, buddy? How are you doing? Let me ask you this. You have all these things. Are you doing any better than the Gentiles? Really? Really, are you? I thought not. And the reason, he says in 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, you can't earn righteousness by keeping Torah. It's not the reason the Torah was given. Even though you have Torah, even though you keep it in some fashion, it's not going to make you righteous. Is it important? Well, yeah, it's important. We covered it. It's an advantage because you know what sin is. But will it make you righteous? 
No, because it's not the reason it was given. What was the reason it was given? It was given to make you aware of sin. Let me read one more time, Romans 10.4. Messiah is the goal of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It was given to show your sin and that you were in need of a redeemer. It was given to show that God is holy and sin requires payment. Sin demands justice and the wages of sin are death. You deserve death and you need a redeemer. You need Yeshua. Not just Gentiles. Yes, they sinned outside the Torah and they're going to be judged for that outside the Torah because they should have known about God from the creation and yet they ignored it and went their own way. But you, the Jewish contingent, How much better did you do with the Torah? You sinned with the knowledge of Torah. Instead of believing and doing, you made excuses. You too sinned, so you're going to be judged by the Torah. Because no one is righteous, not one. We all need the sign of the new covenant, the one who was born of a virgin, who we call Emmanuel.